If you're visiting us with this, this morning, we are currently beginning the book of Second Peter as we make our way through the New Testament, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And thoroughly enjoying ourselves. We're really looking forward to starting this new book and looking forward to all that the Lord has for us uh, in this book because he has a lot in mind for us. All right, let's begin. Second Peter chapter 1, let's begin in verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given, a, given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he, has, he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we love your word. We love the preeminence of it. We love what it means to us and how you put it into our lives to shape us and mold us and fashion us into Christ-likeness. And that's what all of us want, Lord, those of us that know you. We want to, we not to, we want, we may, let me start over. We want to be made like you, Lord, in your character and in godliness. So help us, Lord. Use these verses for that purpose. We trust that your spirit will be our teacher We ask that he would instruct us, encourage us, exhort us, uh, us, to give us all the things that we need in this life, Lord, in this message right now, in this teaching, in this passage, to receive everything that you have for us. We commit this time to you. We pray you'd set it aside for your holy use. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, in the last book that we looked at, we we looked at 1 Peter and that context of that uh, book, as we remember, most of us here, that it was a book that was written to people that were in, enduring incredible suffering. Caesar Nero at the time was really ramping up persecution. I'm convinced that the Apostle Peter probably was not anticipating a second letter. If you read First Peter carefully, it seems like he's basically, you know, saying, you know, this is the last time I'll be writing, or, or these things I'm, in, I'm investing in you or writing to you, it's, it's like as if he thinks he's not going to get a second shot at it. Well, he does. And so here, it's a little bit different because they're not only describing or, or dealing with these, this persecution, but, but now they're dealing with some other things too that, that pile on or make it worse or make it more of a challenge. And we know whatever challenge we face, Whatever difficulty we're up against, 
God always has corresponding grace that is sufficient to help us in that time of need. It's, it's, it's exhausting. I mean, we can't exhaust his grace. It's limitless towards us. And so the Apostle Peter knows that they've received these, this, his previous letter. He probably wrote First Peter probably a year to three years before this, this letter was written here. And so now he's going to add on to his instruction that he gave in the previous book. But the, the two things that are added that weren't as much in First Peter, or the, what they were dealing with during the time he wrote First Peter, is apostasy and false teaching. And he's going to go off on false teachers later in this book. And, and you're like, man, is it I? You know, you're like at the Last Supper, is it I? You know, you're like, I don't want to be a false teacher. I hope I'm not a false teacher because look at what they have to go through or what they're going to suffer or what their end is. And he's going to go into that. So they've had this pressure from without related to persecution, encroaching upon their lives and inter- interrupting everything and 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 buffeting against them and their mind and their focus and maybe losing jobs and family and you know it costs a great deal to be a disciple of Jesus Christ back then in this time but now they're having to deal with false teaching now you can imagine imagine the, the apostle peter's heart being a shepherd jesus said feed my sheep love my sheep he cares about these these pilgrims these uh people that are being persecuted, these believers. So he's going, okay, they're dealing with outside persecution, but now they're dealing with false teaching. You know, Paul said, he lit this whole long list in 2 Corinthians about all the things that he dealt with. And then he said at the very end, in addition to that, my daily concern for the churches. So God gives his leaders his part of his heart, part of his great heart for his people. And so I know that Peter is going, man, they have to deal with the outside persecution, but also they have to deal with this now inward problem. And inward problems usually do a sin. You remember the, the children of Israel. I mean, when they were surrendered to the Lord, they were submitted to the Lord, they were right with him, they weren't serving false gods. God was their defense. God fought their battles for them. And then they would they would you know, surrender or, or, or submit or succumb to false teaching or idols or whatever, and they would, they would start compromising, and then, then God's favor was, was lifted from them, and he would allow another uh, nation to, to conquer them or to, they'd lose in battle and so forth. So always the biggest danger for God's people, even in the Old Testament, has been the, the problem from within. And that's what it is for us as believers as well. We know that. We give a lot more credit to the enemy than we should. James told us as we went through that book that if anyone is tempted, he's carried away by his own lusts. He doesn't even primarily focus at all about the enemy as much as he, you know, as much as he's mentioned in other places. So we have to guard against that. So there's danger from without. There's danger from within. Now, now there's two words that we're going to see multiple times in the book of Second Peter. The first is knowledge, and the second is precious. The first word knowledge is used 13 times in this book, and it's not just head knowledge. It's not just mental assent of certain facts. It's the word, our word gnosko, which is a knowledge by experience. The Greeks had this idea of conceptual knowledge as valuable, but the Hebrew, the Jews, they had this, their idea of experiencing something was far beyond that. It was experiencing it. If you didn't experience it, you didn't really, you don't really know it. You know, there's people that do marriage seminars that are single, unfortunately. You know, it's like, you've never been married and you're doing a marriage seminar? I mean, how can you really know about marriage unless, you have, unless you've been married? 
And, and it's kind of the same thing here. So there's a Greek word for those that experience something with God. It's not just head knowledge, but it's actually going through a process or an experience with God. And that kind of knowledge is what Peter is focusing on over and over again in this book. So we'll see that multiple times. And then the word precious, multiple times he talks about precious as he did in the last book. And it's interesting to think about Peter, this, you know, this masculine, you know, kind of burly guy. Very, very, um, you know, just a tough guy. I just picture him as a tough guy. And, and then him being, you know, expressing himself by the Spirit, in these, these incredible things as, as precious. You know, all the hard edges have been taken away from Peter by the Spirit of God. And now he's considering all these things precious. And then we're going to see, lastly, that he puts an emphasis on reminding them of things they already know. And so we're going to see that, Lord willing, next week. He's going to remind them of things. He's going to say, after I'm gone, uh, you know, we're going to have things in place for you to be reminded of, of these things. And so we'll talk about that. But also, Peter knows that his time is coming to an end in this, in this life. Um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a point at which he says, you know, I must shortly put off this tent. So he knows his time is getting close to being martyred. Jesus said to him in John 21, when you are old, they will take you away or guide you away to a place you don't want to go. And that was part of, of Peter's restoration that he needed to have, his public restoration there. And he was telling him not just that you're going to die a martyr's death, but that you're going to be faithful all the way until you're in, um, an old man. And so that was God's grace. That was part of God's ingredients, or, or it was part of the whole picture of God restoring him, using that grace to restore Peter during that time. So he knew that. And we're going to see next week where he said, just as the Lord Jesus has shown me. So he's getting to the end here. And so, you know, we talk about Second Timothy as Paul's last book to Timothy. This is Peter's last book here. This is close to the end where he ultimately would be crucified upside down. He didn't want to be crucified right side up. Uh, wasn't worthy of that. And so they crucified him upside down. So let's begin in verse 1. It says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he says, Peter, and in the beginning of a letter in those days, you'd write your name at the beginning because they had letters in scroll form. So they didn't want to have to roll them all out and look and see at the, you know, uh, at the end who wrote the book or the letter. So they put their name at the beginning. And, he, and notice he, he says bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, first of all, we need to know what a bondservant is. A bondservant goes back to the imagery of Exodus chapter 21 where a, a Jew owed another Jew money. He could sell himself for no more than, than six years into slavery. And when he paid that off, he was free. And if he wanted, if he loved his master so much, he could say, I, I've never had such a great master, and I want to voluntarily and permanently, those are the two conditions, voluntarily and permanently become a slave for this person because I've never been treated so well. And so they'd take him down to the gates of the city. They'd put an awe through his ear. They'd give him an earring and let everybody know he's a volitional, you know, willful, permanent slave. And so that's that's was very clear in their minds. He brings that up now because he's saying, I'm a willing and permanent servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, and apostle. Apostle means one who is sent. But one thing I notice here is the order. Notice he lives, he gives bondservant first. He doesn't put apostle first. 
There's a lot of people that call themselves apostles out there. I wouldn't put too much stock in, in that. If they, especially if they're demanding to be called anything, I wouldn't put too much stock in, in their calling. But especially apostle out there. But to put, how many of them are putting bondservant? Bondservant Anthony. Sorry, Anthony, I wasn't focusing on you, Anthony. I was, uh, just, just Anthony came to my mind, sorry. Uh, but, you know, bondservant, you know, Jeff or bond, you know, they don't do that. It's apostle this and, you know, and, you know, before you know it, they're teaching all kinds of things that, that Peter's going to speak about in this book that are false teaching. And so here, the humility. Now, remember, Peter was one of those disciples that were fighting <laughs> regarding who's the greatest. So this is the work of the Spirit in his life to get him to have that humility. But he is sent. He is one who is sent as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he says, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us. So normally we've been seeing, uh, at least in Paul's letters, writing to a specific church. He doesn't do that. He's writing to a general, it's a general epistle. He's writing to a general group of people who are, you know, enduring this persecution and so forth. And he says, who have obtained like precious faith with us. First of all, the word precious is there, as I noted, is a key word. But he says, with us. Not, we're not receiving, receiving our faith differently than you. You received faith just like we did. And so you're on an equal plane with us. No hierarchical relationship there. You receive the same faith as we have with us. And, and, what, and how did that happen? By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Only his righteousness could have secured our faith in him. Not our own righteousness. And then I see at the end of verse 1 that he says, Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a very good verse to, to demonstrate the deity of Jesus Christ. Here, right here. God, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Jehovah's Witnesses have changed that verse to make it to where Jesus is not being called God there. But clearly in the, in the New Testament, he's called and is God. So he begins this, this letter here. He moves on to the greeting in verse 2. He says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So he starts with grace and peace. Very common greeting. We've gone over it many times in Paul's epistles and in Peter's epistle. But he always, this is a common greeting because the Gentiles would say charis. They'd say grace when they would greet somebody. And the, and the Jews, even to this day, will say shalom. They'll say peace. And so they kind of brought those two together. But the order is always the same. Grace is always before peace. And it's because the peace of God cannot be secured until I first experience the grace of God. We can't experience peace our own way. We have to go and receive that peace the way that God has called us to receive it. And that's through receiving his unmerited favor in our lives. And I like that Peter writes this. I mean, I just think of all of of Peter's failures. And it encourages me because I think of all my failures. Peter, and we went through this. We've gone through this before. But he had very specific grace from God surgically applied to his heart and his mind. And that was the only way he could survive all of his failures. And he's no different than us. That's how we survive our failures. You know, he said, though they all deny you, I will never deny you. And he denied him three times. And he said, bid me to come out to you on the water. And then he sunk. I mean, the disciples probably pointed that out. Yeah, you went out on the water, but how long did you last? I mean, you could just imagine that. I mean, he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then a few verses later, Jesus is calling him Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You know, the disciples say, I hope you didn't miss that little verbiage. 
that came from the Lord there. You know, I mean, failure after failure. Lops off the servant of the most, the, the servant of the high priest's ear, Malchus, and Jesus creating work for Jesus at his arrest. Has to go down, pick it up, put it on back on his head. I mean, over and over again. Even after Peter came to know the Lord, in Galatians chapter 2, Paul said, I had to confront Peter to his face because he was playing the hypocrite. He was separating himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of what the 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 Jude, the Judai, not the Judaizers, but the, the those with the Jewish background, the Pharisee kind of background guys that came with James, what they thought of Peter. So the approval of man, he failed, and all of <laughs> through all of the history of of the church in the scriptures, we get to see Peter's failure. He is very aware of his failure. And thus, to be used and be fruitful for God, he had to be very aware and of God's grace. And that's why he says, multiplied to you. Paul never said that. Paul never said, grace and peace be multiplied. Only Peter has said it. And Jude will say it too. But that's it. Because you know, he knows it's been multiplied to him. And those of us that have sensed that we've had God's grace multiplied to our account and extended to us so, uh, you know, abundantly, then it's easier for us to extend that grace to others and want others to experience that same grace. Now notice in verse 3, Peter begins to focus on on what we've been given. He says, verse 3, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. So it begins with his divine power. And what is it? What, that's been given. Notice the word given to us. It's past tense. He's given his divine power to us so that in all things, in all things that pertain to life and godliness. And he says, they're all things. In everything that we have need of related to life, related to godliness, he's given us all those things, past tense, Already, And then he says, through the knowledge, that's the experiential knowledge, the knowledge by experience of him who called us by glory and virtue. Sometimes people say, well, I have a certain background. I was brought up a certain way. I have an Irish temper, you know, whatever it is. Uh, You know, all these things, and God doesn't minimize those things. But, the, but one of the things we need to recognize, first of all, by this verse in verse 3, is that every, the playing field is level. All of us have an equal opportunity to live the most godly life that we can possibly live and to live a life that's pleasing to, to him and in response to what he's done for us. So because of, it's his divine power, if it was my power, we couldn't, we couldn't do it. But because it's based on his power... He negates any past that I have. He negates anything that my upbringing, how I was treated, how I was, uh, you know, I got off to a wrong start in so many ways. I mean, I just think of my own life. My own life growing up was very hard. Many of you have had harder lives, but my life growing up was very hard. I didn't have a dad. My brothers were abusive to me in many ways, not always, but in many ways. I escaped in many different ways, growing up just having to deal with life. And it'd be so easy for me to say, well, I had this kind of upbringing, and, and, and thus it works for everybody else, but it can't work for me. 
And God comes in right here by this verse and says, that's not true. And I love the clarity of God's word. I love how clear it is. I love how refreshing it is, how it breaks through all the false thinking that we can have. Because there is no ultimate victimization. Because he makes us a new creation. He puts his spirit within us. He gives us his divine uh, power to live a different kind of life. None of us can say that, yeah, we may have different paths, some worse other than others, but none of us can say that we can't reach the potential that God has for us because of certain things in our past. Because, because we're dealing with an infinite God that has infinite power, that has his word that will not return void. It'll accomplish every purpose into which it's been sent to us. And, and so that gives us fresh perspective. So if you're here today and you're discouraged and you're saying, I just can't live up to what, how I see other people live in the, in the body of Christ. All the resources that you need are already there. He says, given, past tense. He's given us his spirit to be able to to have the power to live a different kind of life. And notice he says, through the knowledge, the experiential knowledge of him who called us, past tense, by glory and virtue. Now he gets to more that's been given to us in verse 4. It says, by which have been given, notice the word given again, past tense, to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So he says it's been given to us. Something's been given. And he says these promises are not just regular promises. He says they're exceedingly great, and there's our word again, precious. Great and precious promises. Let me read some of these promises to you. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your path. That's a promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you, the Lord Jesus said. He says, never going to leave us. That's a promise. We're told in Philippians, God will supply all of our needs according to his riches in glory. Especially if we're sowing into God's kingdom. I mean, I don't mean like church-wise. I'm talking about in, in other people's lives and giving away our lives in other people's I mean, to make an impact in their lives, God will, that's the, that's the context of Philippians. He'll, he'll, he will meet all our needs according to his riches and glory. That's a promise. Philippians, again, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here's the promise. And the peace of God, which surpasses, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. There are all kinds of promises in the Bible. Someone has estimated the low end. I tried to find out how many promises are in the Bible. Wow, what a task. I needed some of God's promises to make it through that whole endeavor to find out how many promises were in the Bible. But the low end was 7,000, and the high end was 30,000 promises in the Bible. And you're like, well, that's kind of a big range. Why don't you? Well, you count them. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to count them. That's a, lot of, that's a lot of time. I just know there's a lot of promises there. And it's, it's endless. And I want to ask you, have you ever seen, yourself included, God not keep one promise? Of any person you've ever known that's known the Lord, have you ever seen God not keep a promise? I've never seen it. 23 years of walking with the Lord, never seen him not keep a promise. 
But we act as if, we live as if, myself included, at times that he hasn't made those promises. And some of those promises we don't want to hear, like in this life you will face tribulation. <laughs> and so I don't want to really claim that all the time. Uh, but that further makes me more godly as I rely upon him. So he says he's given, this, given us exceedingly great and precious promises. And he says that through these, that means the promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature. What does that mean? Because cultists will take this and say, see, we're supposed to be God. We're little gods. We're supposed to be part of the divine nature. You know, the Trinity is open. <laughs> you know, people can join the Godhead. And he's not saying that. He's, all he's talking about through all of this, and we're going to get to even more of these traits, it's his character. It's his godliness. It's what the fruit of the Spirit is, you know, as it comes through, as they come through our, our lives. It's godliness. And he's saying, that's what I want to have come through your lives. And as you trust in my promises, I develop that in your life. I work those things through your life. But notice he says that we escape something in the middle of verse 4. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. First of all, what is lust? Lust is desiring something that's forbidden. That you, bear, you know, get it down to its essence. That's what it is. You can't lust after something that's yours. You know, you, I remember being married and going, man, I'm done having to f- deal with that lust for my fiance because she's mine. You know, and then I don't have to lust after. You don't lust after your car. You don't go, especially my cars. <laughs> you know, uh, you don't go. Once you have a car, once you own something, you don't lust after it. It's only something that you're not supposed to have, that's forbidden. So he says we've escaped the corruption. And what's interesting is that's a pretty strong word, escaped. You know, you escape from a burning building that's about to come crumbling down. He's saying we escape from something. And the word corruption means a rotting corpse. That's what this world produces out there. It produces death. The ways of this world, the spirit of this world, the enemy, all of that, following our own lusts, it destroys us. And I want to warn us this morning that the enemy is still playing for real even after we come to know him he still he still wants to steal kill and destroy and if we don't yield to him and if we don't submit our lives to him we're in danger and and he'll take us out and 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 so we all receive that exhortation i i I receive it then he continues uh, there in, in, in verse 5. And what he's going to do is provide some exhortation in regards to living out this divine nature. So he begins this section, verses 5 through 10, in verse 5 by saying, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge. Before we get into all these things, I want to focus on the word add there in the middle of verse 5. You see that word add? He's already talked about multiplying. Now he's talking about adding. So he's he's using some terms here. But But the word add is a very specific word. It's a word that they would use to describe preparing for a king. It it means to lavishly or generously furnish something. So you're preparing for something with with uh, being generous, and you're preparing like you're preparing for royalty. Now, I know our presidents aren't royalty. That's for sure, okay? They're not. They're presidents. But what if the president was going to come over to your house for dinner? 
Think about it. If he was coming over for dinner, don't say lock the door. <laughs> don't say no. Uh, well, he's coming over for dinner, and you're actually going to let the, the president in. Okay, let's just start there. You're going to let him in, and you're gonna, you're, you wanted to bless the president. You know, you're, you're praying for him every day, and so you want him to come over and, and, or her or whatever, and you want them to enjoy a nice meal. Would you use the paper plates? No, you wouldn't use the paper plates. You would, you would take out your best china, and you would prepare the house. I love people that have a great gift of hospitality. It's so wonderful to come into their house and feel comfortable. And when they've put forethought into it, where they've done a few things to make it more comfortable for you, and some people are just off the chart hospitable. It's just beautiful. It's one of the requirements for leadership, for, for uh, um, overseers. Be hospitable. So I'm still working on that. But, uh, you know, you, you, you want them to come over and you want them to be blessed. And so that's this word add is describing that you want to add to your faith. You want to, in addition to what you're already doing in terms of nurturing your faith, you want to add certain things. You want to lavish, lavishly and generously furnish your existing faith with these things. And so that's what he's getting at here. But he says, first, before he gets to that, he says, for this very reason. What very reason? What is he in the beginning of verse 5? He says, for this very reason. What's he talking about? The fact that we've received this inheritance from him. That we've received everything that pertains to life and godliness. And that his divine power has done all the things that it's doing and what's available to us. For that reason, he tells us to add to our faith, but do it with diligence. In the middle of verse 5, he says, with all diligence. Maybe that might be an encouragement for someone here. Maybe these things you're saying are pretty good in place, and he's, but maybe you're not being diligent in it. He's saying, be diligent in it. Add to your faith virtue. So virtue means moral excellence, and it has a courageous uh, flavor to it. We're not, you don't just have moral excellence personally, but you are courageous in your moral excellence, which includes speaking up for what's right and what's wrong in this world. To be salt and light and to say, no, I'm sorry, that's wrong. I don't care if 90% of this world thinks that this is right. God says it's wrong. That's being courageous and taking a moral stand, and that's, that's included in this word virtue. So he says, add to. Remember, it's our responsibility. He's telling us to add. We don't pray for God to add. He's saying add. Now, we do that by yielding to him, but it's still our responsibility to initiate that process. But then he says, add to virtue, knowledge. And that's our word again, knowledge by experience. So to experience God, to experience the things of him, to experience the kingdom of God in an increasing way. That's what he's getting at. We need to furnish our faith, lavishly furnish our faith with virtue and that kind of knowledge. And then verse 6, to knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. Self-control, we have to talk about self-control. Well, it's the first of the year. You're usually talking about self-control anyway, right? Yes, I'm going to now have self-control in certain areas in, in my life. But that's a fruit of the Spirit. And we always like to say, well, I'll just out of control. I couldn't control myself. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So he gives us the capacity to be able to do what's right. And really the idea is controlling the, the, the passions and the pressures from within. It's, it's controlling that which is within us. 
related to our sinful nature. But then he adds perseverance there, and that's bearing up under pressure from without. So we deal with pressure from within, from our sinful nature. The Spirit takes care of that with self-control. But then when we have difficulty from without, whether it's persecution like, like these believers are dealing with or other things, God gives us the capacity as we yield to him to have perseverance and to handle that pressure from without. And then he adds to, to, uh, to perseverance godliness. It speaks of devotion and and uh, growing in Christ-likeness. And so he wants us to continually grow. See, what's interesting is that, and I mentioned this when we went through First Peter, you would think that when they're going through all this difficulty and suffering like they, they were, that God would say, okay, I'm going to ease up a little bit on the exhortation with the personal holiness. Or He doesn't do it at all. He, he has the same expectations for them to live in an increasingly godly way, even though they're going through great difficulty. And so he's continuing that. He said, you need to grow. Yes, you're going through horrible times. You're going through persecution. You're, going, you're having false teaching in your midst and false teachers. That doesn't mean you get off the hook of being other-centered and thinking about other people. Verse 7. To godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. Now we talk about it regularly, try to keep it before all of us, that our lives as believers is, are, are supremely for him and, and in a practical way for others. And so when we want to grow as a Christian, we grow by focusing on him and focusing on others and then indirectly God develops me and I mature. But I can't go purposely after it in terms of having a self-focus. That's not how he set things up. So that's why he's putting this in here. Because brotherly kindness, what is that? It's our word phileo, brotherly love. The word Philadelphia is the, the word for you know, brother, the city of brotherly love. And so it's an affectionate love. And sometimes we feel it and sometimes we don't. But we still have to be kind and appropriate. This world's chewing people up and spitting them out. We can't be a place where... They get treated the same way when they come among God's people. We have to be kind and considerate, even if they're not like us, even if we can't relate to them, even if whatever reason we can give, because we can come up with a lot of reasons to pick and choose and to cherry pick certain people I'm going to be kind to. He says, that's not like the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus wasn't like that. He loved everybody equally. So you need to be like him. Jesus was, uh, had incredible and does have incredible brotherly kindness towards us. So we're supposed to extend that. But then he says, add to that love, and that's our word agape, which is sacrificial love, where it costs us something, where you do what's best for the other person, even at your own expense. That's Christian agape love. And so he says, add to that brotherly kindness, that sacrificial love. There'll be times where the Spirit will lead us to, to be kind to somebody and to be affectionate and be thoughtful. But then there'll be times where they're not appreciating it. <laughs> they need to be told something in, a, in an appropriate way. Or they need to be served in a very sacrificial way. And he leads us to do it. He says, don't let persecution and all this stuff, the people walking away from the Lord and all these things, get in the way of you continuing to do that. Because that's how Jesus is. Jesus didn't stop being sacrificially loving because he's dealing with the cross when he was in this, in this world, in the public ministry. In Luke, when it says he, he focused towards Jerusalem steadfastly, he still healed Bartimaeus. He still saved Zacchaeus. He's on his way to the cross. He knows that. He's still forgiving on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's our standard. 
We know we'll never meet that perfect standard, but we need to continue to grow and to be stretched towards more and more Christ-likeness. He continues on in verse 8. He says, For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. First word that jumps out at me is the word if. It's conditional. It's not an automatic automatic thing. If these things are yours, and notice, abound, you will be neither barren nor... What's it mean to be barren or unfruitful? Well, barren means to be barren. I mean, you don't have children. And... He, or, or you, or you are a, you know, a tree or whatever, and you're barren. You don't, you're not bearing fruit. I mean, it's, it's very closely related to there. But he's very concerned about the fruit that's being born through our lives. Ephesians two ten. He's created us in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared in advance that we should walk in them. So we're not saved by our works, obviously, but we're saved unto good works. And he's very concerned about fruitfulness in our lives. And we have to fight against our natural propensity to have such a self-focus and hoard life's resources on ourselves when he's called us to be not, not to be like a swamp, but to be an, you know, a, a, a river where his resources, his, our time, which is his time, our spiritual gifts, which are his gifts he's loaned us, are being given away and poured out for other people. Just like Jesus. See, all these things are just being like Jesus. Jesus didn't hoard life's resources on himself. He said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. So God's very concerned about us being unfruitful. But he says there's a way to do it. We don't just roll up our sleeves and say, okay, fruitful, 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 fruitful. Try to say that fast. And I'm going to be fruitful today. You can't do that. Jesus talked all about that in John chapter 15. He's talked about us, you know, needing to be plugged in to the vine and and to be pruned and, and to let him produce fruit by abiding, by living and dwelling in him and yielding. That's a great word for Christian growth, yielding to him and letting him bear fruit through our lives. And so if we yield to him and let all him produce all these things that he's been talking about, through our lives, it automatically produces fruit. The fruit of the Spirit. Remember, fruit is not supremely for the tree's enjoyment. Fruit is for other people's enjoyment that walk up to that tree and pick it. It's not supremely for our enjoyment. So when he produces all these things, this whole list that he says are supremely for other people's enjoyment, of course, beyond his. He's the first one that, he's the first partaker of that fruit. But then other people get to enjoy all these things. It's not to make me wonderful and enjoy all these things in myself. That'll happen. It'll be indirect. It's supremely for other people. So he's saying, if, it's conditional, if these things are yours and abound, you won't be barren or or unfruitful in the knowledge, knowing by experience, is our word again, of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is true. Light is not heard. It's seen. And he wants us to be salt and light in this world. Verse 9, for he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. So the first thing he says that we, we, that we lack is that we're short-sighted. I'm nearsighted. Well, I'm far-sighted too. 
I'm a lot of things, but I, I take off my glasses and I, your guys are blurry right now. And, and it reminds me, this verse here, when you spiritually are short-sighted, you can't see the big picture. You can't see the, the, the long view, spiritually speaking. But when you're fruitful, a lot of things come into focus. When you're not barren, when you're reproducing spiritually and you're, you're, you're bearing fruit, you're giving your life away, you're serving, you're being other-centered, then you can see things so clearly. But he says it even gets so bad is that you can be spiritually blind. You're, because you're being unfruitful, you're not aware of what's going on spiritually in the world and around you and in your life and so forth. He doesn't want that from us. And he says that person also has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. That, that begs the question, why did God save us? I mean, why does he link you've, you've been forgotten that you've been cleansed from your old sins related to fruitfulness? Because the reason why he cleansed us from our old sins is so that we can glorify him with our lives. And that includes being fruitful. It brings him glory. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may glorify your father in heaven. It brings him glory when we bear fruit. And that's what he wants. So if we've not done that or if we're neglecting those things, we're forgetting why God even forgave us in the first place. And that's, that's a great searching point for all of our hearts. Verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent. It's not like they weren't being diligent, but he says, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling, your call and election sure. What's he talking about? See, as I'm bearing fruit, as my life looks like Christ, as I'm being other-centered, as I'm being godly, as I'm growing and letting God bear this fruit through my life by abiding in him and surrendering to him, it's evidence to me that I'm in the truth. It's reassuring to me that I really am a child of God. As all of us have doubts at times. I mean, this is a life of faith. We don't see. And so he's saying, if you live this kind of life, you will, you will be even more secure than you already are in your election and your calling. It'll be an evidence to you that you're in the truth. Because if you're here today and you've cl- you claim to be a Christian, you've never seen a change in your life. I'm not talking about if you were three years old or, you know, you know if you're, you know, old enough to where you know, remember a, a difference. And there was no difference then I wouldn't bet a nickel on that salvation. You need to, I mean, Paul told the Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith, unless Christ isn't in you and you fail the test. So it's good for us to search ourselves. I'm not trying to cast down anyone's salvation at all, but the, po- the point is he wants, he wants us to have that, that um, security. I mean, we have security of our salvation, but I'm saying it's just more of a comfort to us. He says the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. He wants us to know and, and be confident in our, our salvation and that we're, we're new creations. And so it's a great encouragement. But he says if you do these things, you will never stumble. There's another promise. There's another promise that he listed. You will never stumble. God doesn't want us to stumble. But if our election and our call is solidified in our heart, as he, he starts changing our lives even more. We start seeing fruit being born through our lives. It blesses us. We don't stumble there. And then I love this promise at the end of verse 11. 
For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom. So he's thinking about when we actually go to heaven. That moment when, and each of us will go there in a different way unless the rapture happens. Well, we'll it'll be a different timing, different way. But God's thinking of that entrance, that moment. And I, and I believe he's looking forward to that more than we are. And that word entrance is very critical there. He's saying it's been supplied to, the, to us. Do you see that? Will be supplied, past tense. That's the same word that we saw earlier in verse 5, the word add. You know, where you furnish something, uh, you know, aggressively or um, lavishly or generously. So he says, that, I'll do that for you. When you. At the time when I bring you to heaven, I will, I will furnish you. I will lavishly, generously give you an entrance into the heavenly everlasting kingdom. And he does say everlasting. They're going through hardship. When you're going through difficulty and trials, you think this is never going to end. And he's saying, yes, it will end. But something that's waiting for you will never end. Something wonderful, something amazing. Because there is a kingdom that our Lord Jesus Christ oversees, and we're going, we're going to go there someday. I mean, we live in the kingdom of God in the, in the sense of the spiritual realm, but in terms of his, the, the, that location, we're going to be there. So it's a, it's a great exhortation for us to continue to grow spiritually, to grow in holiness, to grow in being a functional family. We've had enough dysfunctional families out there. We don't need this family to be dysfunctional. We want it to be functional. We want it to be biblical. And, and he wants us to remember why he saved us. It wasn't supremely for our own benefit. It's for others. It's for him. It's all about others, getting our eyes off of our selves. We can mask selfishness in many different ways and package it and, and convince ourselves that it's spiritual, but he's all about other people. He's all about worship. He's all about blessing his people. And so this is a really good exhortation. A lot more to come next week, Lord willing. But man, talk about so much to, to think about in terms of sharing his divine nature. That's like him sharing his, his character, his life with us. And we get to live his life let him live his life through our lives. And it's a beautiful privilege. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for the preeminence of this passage, Lord, and what it means to us and how you've worked it in our lives today. I know there's so many different ways we could have gone, but Lord, we just, we want to receive everything that you have for us. And we want to be changed. We want to be different. We want to be more like you, Lord. So I pray, Lord, for every one of us here that you'd help us to be more like you, Help us to rely upon you to bear fruit through our lives. Lord, you haven't called any of us to try harder. You've called us to rely upon you. So increase our faith, Lord. Increase our holiness. Increase our dependence upon you. Thank you for your great grace and how you lavish that upon us. We need all of that grace. And we thank you that you want to give it more than we want to receive it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.